One theme that runs through 2020 and 2021 is our relationship with bias. We know that unconscious bias is powerful. And in recent years, we've collectively had that discussion more. We know that bias can impact both innovation and culture. But we also know that bias, properly addressed, can be a competitive advantage. The past 18 months have laid much bare about our relationships with work, friends, culture, politics, privilege, and much more. For professionals interested in brain science, habit activation, and human behavior, as we are here at the Neuroleadership Institute, it's been an insanely interesting time. Our three panelists for this episode discuss bias in a variety of ways, how it's an impediment to innovation, its cultural relevance, and ways of overcoming the inherent challenges behind said biases. It's very action-heavy, diversity-heavy, race-heavy, and bias-heavy. And if these are current challenges for you, we hope you embrace them. I'm Shade Olasimbo, and you're listening to Your Brain at Work from the Neuroleadership Institute. We continue to draw our episodes from a weekly webinar series that NLI has been hosting every Friday. For this one, there's lots of different visuals referenced, so if you'd like to view the video version of this episode, you can find it on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Neuroleadership Institute. Look for episode 50. And keep in mind, you can view all of our previous episodes there as well. But for today's episode, our panel consists of NLI Senior Client Strategist Janet Stovall, NYU's inaugural Senior Vice President for Global Inclusion and Strategic Innovation, Dr. Lisa Coleman, and Dr. Natalie Byfield, a professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at St. John's University. Enjoy. From our title, you know, we're going to talk about innovation and communication, and we're going to talk about what world bias plays in that. So we're going to start with talking about how we got to where we are. We're going to go from there to where we are, and then we're going to talk about the future. Let's start off by saying, first of all, what do we mean by bias? So at NLI, we start and we end all of our definitions of bias with these eight words. If you have a brain, you have bias. It's that simple. Bias, cognitive bias, is in the brain. It's hardwired. It's evolutionary. It's designed to keep us alive. Its prime directive is don't die. You might think that we have evolved to the point where we can be smart enough not to be biased. Not true. Intelligence will make you less biased. Experience or expertise might change the biases that you deal with, but it will not make you less biased. It's normal to have bias, and it's also normal to have no idea that you have it, to be completely unaware of it, which is why we call it unconscious. Cognitive biases are really our minds playing tricks on us and trying to convince us that we're right without any good reason. That's why we call it unconscious. And there are actually more than 150 different unconscious biases out there. So what we've done at NLI is we've corralled that 150 plus into something we call the SEEDS model. It's the way, a way to think about, to understand, and to talk about the types of biases that affect the decisions we make. And the biases do affect our decisions. The acronym SEED stands for the five categories that we put those biases into. Similarity, expedience, experience, distance, and safety. But these biases are in your brain, they're working all the time, and they affect everything we say, do, and create. And they always have been for all of us. So it stands the reason that 
most of, rather all of the things that we communicate and create and innovate have some bias baked in. And if, if humans existed in isolation, if we never evolved beyond hunter-gatherers, that might not be a problem. We would just have great tools to keep ourselves alive, you know, the don't die prerogative. But we did evolve. And that put us on a continuum from biology to bigotry, from unconscious bias to conscious bias. And as we've evolved, conscious bias has become as part of those same systems, those solutions, those statements. It's baked in too. It's normalized. We have subjective assumptions that we are holding as objective truths. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how that happened. Let's start by finding out how we got here. Let's do that by asking two questions. What are the established systems where bias lives and grows? And what have those systems produced that have furthered the misperceptions that we accept as truths? For that, I'm going to turn to Dr. Lisa Coleman, who has lots of research on this and is going to tell us a little bit about it. Yes, thank you so much. I'm going to talk a little bit about the history and thinking about the history of where we have been, where we might think we have come from. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about a brief history of the systems of racialized legacies. I'm going to begin by talking about sort of the selected mapping of the beginnings of racialized science. So when we're thinking about racialized science, what I'm going to talk a lot today about is sort of the history of how science it was married with racialized patterns of understanding and then inquiry. So if we go back in time, what we can, and one of the things I want to say from the very early points of this is I'm going to map this across Europe and the United States to make connections so that you understand that this was not just about the U.S. And in fact, it's very much about the formation of the U.S. I used to teach a course called The Making of a Nation, 1790 to 1924. And for those of you who are familiar, 1790 is when whiteness is conflated with citizenry, and 1924 is again with the National Origins Act. But what happens in the midst of this is a a pattern of science. So let's start by looking at some of the scientists who contributed to this. So we think about Carlos, Petrus, Johann, Samuel, Francis, and J. Marion Sims. So I'm going to just talk a little bit about them. So what we have in the beginning is this delineation of what begins in the 18th century from the 17th century of categorizations of racial categories, European, American, Asiatic, and African. When we get, as we move throughout the 18th century, what we begin to have is the establishment of things like the standards of beauty and also things like the idea of an original race that's going to later inform the 1790 decision. And if you think of the work of Blumbach, right, the term Caucasian in 1795 to describe mankind, and that's Mount Caucasus, and then the determination that this is the original race and therefore the most beautiful. All standards then will be measured against this Caucasian term from 1790 forward. Then we come to Samuel Morton, who theorized in the mid 1800s around intelligence, right? And this has to do with brain sizes and what that meant, right, in terms of thinking about races, skulls, superiority, and inferiority, and the measurements. And why this is important is this is really where you begin the scientific databases and those kinds of things that are going to be recorded throughout time, and those measurements are going to be used again and again and again. And we can think about uh, the 1994 publication of the bell curve, and I will come to that later. We get to Francis Galton 
Clinton, who then coins the term eugenics to encompass the idea of modification and selection through selective breeding. And what this really meant was eugenics was the time to really say that there was a superior race and we needed to really double down on that idea. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the specificity of uh, eugenics and phenomenology. And J. Marion Sims, the father of American gynecology, we cannot leave him out because he was so important to understanding the ways in which gender and race, and we think about the intersectionality. J. Marion Sims is known as the father of American gynecology. He is the one who actually began to think about these repairs for complications in relation to childbirth. And as you know, during the 18th and 19th centuries, childbirth, many women were dying from childbirth for complications. But what he did, and he also was one of the first people to create the idea of a speculum. It was called the Sim speculum. That has been modified over time. However, what is important to note about Sim's work is that he operated on and performed his procedures and experiments on Black women without using anesthesia. These were enslaved Black women, and this would provide a model for the kind of, when we get to things like Tuskegee later, right, without consent, those kinds of experimentations that are done particularly on Black and Indigenous bodies. So eugenics, the practice of controlled selective breeding, I already told you a little bit about that, but what I would like to say here is that eugenics continues on, and in terms of the science of eugenics, right, and then this this idea of a superior race, this idea of natural selection is something that, of course, Darwin picks up and other scholars to isolate and say that those who will survive are the breed of the fittest. And then, of course, the idea of who gets to survive is based on resource allocation, et cetera. And then we're going to talk a little bit about this study of the heads. So we think about the eugenics and the categorizations. On the left-hand side, you can see these categorizations of idiot, imbecile, high-grade imbecile, and moron. And how that was then made real was through these scientific measurements of skulls. So on the right-hand side, you will see different images of skulls. There are also measurements of skulls across different racial categories and women. What was then decided was that the skulls of Africans were more related to those of animals, such as gorillas, etc., and therefore their brain sizes were smaller. This was depicted in pictures again and again and again. Secondly, that was also true for women and women's brains, and particularly then for Black women, they were often depicted as both, right, sort of gorilla-ish, and also uh, there's the hot and tot image we're going to talk about in a little bit. I want to talk about this because also it's important to think about the relationship between racialized science and art. This is, of course, one of the original drawings by da Vinci called The Original Man, right? And one of the reasons I depict this is because when we think about the work of da Vinci, da Vinci during his time period, and like many others, right, there is the intersections. When we talk about intersectionality, it's not just about intersections of race, et cetera. It's about the intersections of disciplines and the systems that Janet brought up earlier, and these systems are interrelated. So art, science, government, education, history. And so that's what I'm gonna map out now. So when we're thinking about science and art, right? They are in communication with one another. And this idea of the original man becomes an image. This image is reproduced throughout art and the idea of the original man. Da Vinci, also did a lot of skeletal drawings and his skeletal drawings provided a map for how we would think of skeletal drawings later. And then we come back to the skeletal drawings that were taking place during right the 18th and early 19th century. And you can see the modeling of these kinds of skeletal images from thinking about, we have 
the image of man all the way right to the orangutan and the chimpanzee. And these images were used to depict black people. And then of course, the image of the original man in the skeletal image as the perfect man. The Venus Hottentot, uh, some of you know, started G. Bartman, and of course, the work related to her. But the Hottentot image was much bigger than Sarah Bartman. And these were images that were used throughout Europe and the United States to depict Black women's sexuality and the over and hypersexualization of Black women. There was also the hypersexualization of Black men in the images of Buck, etc. These images circulated, and of course, body parts, and it leads to also the dissection of Black women, the Venus Hottentot and Sarah Bartman's parts, body parts, until the 90s were on public view in France in a museum. And as a result, uh, public outrage were eventually taken down. But I mention this because, of course, the legacies continue today. Thomas Jefferson, one of our greatest presidents and one of our greatest people who had a lot to say about race. So when we think about racism, science, bias, and governmental policies, this is a quote from Thomas Jefferson. Quote, I advance it therefore as a suspicion only that Blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. End quote. Jefferson enacted policies over and over again related to this kind of philosophy. He was, of course, one of the fathers of American democracy. And so we think about the systems again that Janet brought up and how this kind of racist ideology is embedded within our systems and pulled out of science, right? Body and mind to go back to those categorizations and delineations. Then we move to racism, science, and psychiatry and mental health. The advent of psychiatry is brought into the United States through Europe, places like Argentina. And then, of course, we saw great migratory patterns. The formation of psychiatry in the United States, many have traced this through the original sort of Freud psychology movements to ego psychology, which takes formation in the United States. That particular brand of psychology institutionalizes through psychiatric institutions uh, a kind of superiority complex, superiority around the brain and what is manifested as normal. What we know, if we look at this book from 1840 to 1880, and then, of course, the administrations of lunacy, racism, and the haunting of American psychiatry, what we know is that the legacies of this permeate even today. Misdiagnoses, more Black people are misdiagnosed with schizophrenia than any other group in the United States. The long legacies of mental health and disparities are there built on those earlier racist discourses. This goes to racism, science, bias, and research, and we're still here. The bell curve, Charles, the after Charles Murray, who continues to write today. And then, of course, we have some of the work to debunk this. But basically, the bell curve is a measure of intelligence, the idea of a measure of intelligence, pseudoscience, and that Blacks are on the lower end. And as you can see, whites are on the higher end in terms of IQ measurement. And these were very standardized tests. And we know the biases and standardized tests. I don't have time to go through all of that either. Racism, science, bias, and research, mankind quarterly would still exist today. So as we're moving through time, now we're getting through up through the 1940s after, right, of course, Nazism and eugenics, we get to the 1960s. 
1960s, the beginning of this journal, The Mankind Quarterly, which is still in publication today. And all I can say is that it was started in, in Edinburgh, Scotland, again, showing this connection between Europe and the United States. It is a white supremacist journal. That's how it has been described. And it, it continues to this day to serve as a mouthpiece to promote eugenics and scientific racism and the superiority of the white race. Legacies of the Racial Science, and this is Superior, The Return of Science, a new book by Sani, a London-based journalist who's written this book. And what she argues, of course, is that in the 70 years, and of course, the 170 years, of bio, 270 years of biological sciences, we have seen that the social meaning has continued in many ways. While it has been repressed, it still is part of the legacies of what we have to deal with. To go back to what Janet said, the legacies of race science, we have conscious and unconscious cognitive biases. If we go to the work of Claude Steele, stereotype threat, of course, Mazarin Banaji and Anthony Greenwald and the unconscious and cognitive biases. I have to give shout out to Mazarin, my former colleague from Harvard. I miss you, Mazarin. Discrimination. And I miss you too, Claude. We used to work together. <laughs> anyway, discrimination, violence, and differential treatment and impact. Lots of this. We saw this during COVID, right? Health disparities, misdiagnoses related to mental health. I just mentioned that. We can think about melanoma. Black people can't tan, so they can't get skin cancer, right? All kinds of misnomers around the Black body, right? We also know that Black people and Black women in particular are less likely to see, receive pain medications because of this idea that we are in to pain, going back to the Venus Hottentot. Environmental and climate impacts, what we know if we think about asthma and all of these kinds of things and reports that have come out that Blacks are more asthmatic than whites. That is not true, but Blacks live in climates and environments where there is more pollution often. If we think about right here in New Jersey, New York, one of the Black indigenous populations, the oldest Black and indigenous population is, has the most pollution in the United States right outside of their region, right? Asthma and all kinds of other complications, health complications, and uneven emerging technologies, whether that's the digital divide, and we know meet people on their smartphones. We know 42% of low-income Americans are using smartphones, and we know the intersections with race and poverty. Algorithms and bias, we've seen it through Google. We've seen the people who've had to leave Google and all, and all of those kinds of things. And there is so much more. Again, I am just looked at the time. I'm definitely out of my time. So I would just like to say, when we think about this, we have to, again, think about these legacies, the systems, and how they inform where we are today. And we're going to talk about some solutions as we go forward. Wow, Dr. Coleman, my head's blowing up. I'm sure a lot of people's are. I think the thing we want to think about and we want to take from this is we got here for a reason. What we believe to be objective, what we think is objectively true, is really subjective. And if you think about it from everything Dr. Coleman said, the very first biased reality that we deal with is race. That's a social construct. It doesn't even exist. So you think about it, you just start with that and then think about all the things that we have built and made and determined and do based on that. So that's how we got here. But then the question is, where are we now? And Dr. Coleman started off by saying, she, you know, she ended, ended actually by saying, and has taken us to the next section, what are we doing right now that is setting the stage for where we go from here? And for that, I'm going to turn to Dr. Byfield because a lot of her work has been in some of the things that Dr. Coleman was talking about, which is like AI and that. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Dr. Byfield. Okay, thank you very much, Janet. And Dr. Coleman, thank you for that wonderful presentation. I want to focus some of what I discuss right now on 
the work that I've been doing, the more or less empirical work that I've been doing, which exists really at the nexus between media and policing. And I'm specifically pointing to that connection between media and policing because of how my work has evolved from the studies about the Central Park case to eventually studying police surveillance in New York City. And my initial studies around the Central Park Five case led me to the conclusion that we have not discussed enough and understand enough about the collusion that actually takes place between the media in their reporting of events and policing and the police themselves as an institution. So in terms of thinking about the ways in which some of these biases have permeated our institutions, I want to focus our attention on media and police and this collusion relationship between media and police. The Central Park Five case revolves around a series of incidents that occurred on the night of April 19th, 1989. And there are four major features to that incident. One, a relatively large group of Black and Latinx male teenagers were seen gathering at the entrance of Central Park on 110th Street. A smaller group of Black and Latinx male teens were seen running through Central Park in areas by the reservoir and beyond, smaller groups. Three, some people, predominantly whites, who were running recreationally and involved in other types of leisure-related activities in the park were assaulted, allegedly, by some of these smaller groups of Black and Latinx teens. And four, a lone female jogger was raped and badly beaten later that evening in relatively close proximity to where the events transpired. So those are the things that we know happened that night. And those are the things I should say we knew happened that night from the initial unfolding of the incident back in April 19th of 1989. How the press covered that incident, though, turned it into a whole other affair. Some of the information that you heard about bias and about the history of science actually is implicated in what happened in terms of the coverage. So first and foremost, the coverage that we got from that incident, the the media coverage is in essence based on a type of cognitive processing that all media institutions go through to process the phenomena of race. And that processing, the relevant features of that processing are centered on language and what I call media language. And so they pay attention to story topics, the structure of the story, quotations, style, semantics, things like that. But what those general topics translate into when it comes to presenting the information is that it turns around and draws on this history of race science that was presented earlier and this history and understanding of the relationship between the races that is based on a structure, really an institutionalized structure of white supremacy. And so the ideas that were highlighted in the coverage of the story focused on words and terms like wilding, focused on words and terms like hunt, focused on words and terms like feral to describe the young people who were initially accused. 
And so the outcome of what is essentially was presented to the public here is that we watched the media go through a type of cognitive processing that led the public, because of their the history of what has been presented in the stereotypical representations of Black people in the United States, people of color in the United States, leads to a type of public acceptance of what the media is presenting to them. And so this outcome leads to the wrongful conviction of primarily Black and Latinx youth, and their convictions are not particularly challenged because of the public expectations that existed. And also by the environment also during that period. So we have the historical associations between race and crime, and we have a particular environment where there's a step up of the drug wars and things like that. And we get public acceptance of stereotypical representations that paint the kids who were accused in this case, paint them as guilty. You love listening to Your Brain at Work, and we love hearing your feedback. It's a beautiful working relationship. And it's why we'd appreciate it if you could take just a few minutes to complete our listener survey. Visit neuroleadership.com slash pod survey to let us know what you love about the show, what we can do to improve it, and topics you'd like to hear more about. Now, let's get back to the show. Some of the work that I've done studying this has led me to certain conclusions. One is a lack of self-awareness that there was implicit bias in media structures, in the internal organizing of the media, the institutional relationships that exist between media and police, for example, and definite lack of self-awareness of the bias that's being presented in the media products, like the stories that are coming out. And Another conclusion that I I essentially came to was that the actions of the media, meaning the media products that they created, led various elements of the public to a logical conclusion befitting their preconceived ideas about not just the teen's guilt, but the fact that those preconceived ideas came from this long history of a type of race science that's been practiced and developed in a way and permeates institutions today with the stereotypes that came out of the race science that allows people to continue seeing these ideas as somehow objective, somehow making sense. In terms of the coverage of the Central Park case, some of the things that we have not talked about and that has been becoming important for me as we look at the implications of this type of cognitive bias, how it permeates institutions like media, and how it advances in the world, particularly in the institutional relationships between policing and media, those things become particularly important when you think about a case like the Central Park Five case. In the context of that case, what we saw in the wake of that case was a stepping up of broken windows policing and a stepping up of the practice of stop and frisk. From my work on that case, it made it very clear to me that I needed to pay closer attention to how stop and frisk operated in the city. First and foremost, it was stop and frisk practices that allowed for the police to detain the night of the attack on the jogger. The stop and frisk practices allowed police to detain Raymond Santana, for example. They didn't find him in the park, but they were able to detain him on suspicion. And we can talk a little bit later in the course of the conversation about how stop and frisk actually works and the laws that it's based on. 
but the laws that it's based on allow for the police to stop and detain people based on suspicious activity and allows them to do that without the courts have ruled violating Fourth Amendment rights. And so we have a situation where in the wake of the Central Park case, we recognized and noticed that stop and frisk escalated tremendously in the city. And the stop and frisk practices that existed in the city existed as a type of surveillance. But what is oftentimes not discussed about the way in which stop and frisk has been practiced in New York City, particularly under the Bloomberg administration between 2002 and 2013, when the practice in the way it was done was ruled unconstitutional. A key element of the way stop and frisk was practiced was that it was served as a major data gathering point for people who were stopped. For every stop that was made, police were required to collect data on a UF-250 form. And on this UF-250 form, there are something like 126 data points that end up being assessed. And the data that was collected were collected on things like birthmarks, tattoos, not just the precinct where the stop occurred, the actual physical location of the stop, if you were stopped with other people in the group, and if you were stopped and not just stopped with other people in the group, but then what we saw also on this UF-250 form were the reasons for the stop. Reasons such as wearing clothing that was out of season for the time in which the stop was made. For example, another highly used reason for stops during this height of the stop and frisk practice under the Bloomberg administration was furtive glances. And the only thing I can conclude from this discussion of furtive glances is that people seem shifty in their appearance. And this, we we know we can trace some of that to historically how Black people have been stereotyped. So part of what we see on the UF-250 form in terms of the data that was gathered on the form is that data was now being gathered on Black people, Latinx people that met some kind of cultural stereotype also about who these people are and what they represent. And of course, if this data is being gathered, then you know it's being gathered for a purpose. So one of the purposes for gathering this data, of course, was the police's argument is to bring crime rates down. But what we also know is that this data that has been gathered was used to help develop now the algorithms for assessing and used to develop the algorithms that are being used and have been developed to do data analytics of crime data in the city. One of the things you have to keep in mind about the data that was gathered during stop and frisk, particularly under the Bloomberg administration now, is that this data was gathered based on somewhere in the vicinity of 5 million stops. Approximately 90% were of Black and Latinx people. And of those people stopped, 90% were released because they were innocent. There was no real reason for the stop. Their stop didn't even meet the level of this suspicion, so they couldn't be detained. And so we have algorithms being developed based on data gathered from people 
who were not really engaged in any illegal activity whatsoever, not even suspicious, not even activity that met the level of suspicious behavior. So does that system now exist? And I'd like to ask Dr. Coleman to step in on this too. How does all that history mm-hmm. into, you know, you mentioned the, the AI that we're using right now. Let's talk very quickly about how all this factors into even the systems that all of us use every day. I mean, because, you know, I think it's it's real easy for us to say, well, you know, the police do that or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I believe, and I think your research shows this too, and some of the work you've done too, Dr. Coleman, is that these systems are also generating data and fueling the data of the systems that we use normally. I mean, I may not get caught up in an AI search, but I remember reading an article several years ago about how AI and face recognition, the systems don't read skin color. AI that does generate systems like resumes, they kick out women's resumes. The one that Amazon did a couple of years ago that created an AI that kicked out the resumes of women if they had women's colleges on mm-hmm. it. The world that I live in, in communications and marketing, you see it in targeted advertising. And now we have something I'll call weblining, which is analogous to redlining in the housing industry, where you get shown ads and those kind of things. So AI is playing into all those things. So the question is, what are we going to do about this? I mean, we're here now. We got here. We know we got here. And it's built in. It's baked into the system. It's the gremlin in the machine. What can we possibly do about this? That's something I'm interested in because when we talk about it in terms of business and in those spaces too, what are we going to do? How do we address this? I know that from the standpoint of bias in LI, we say you mitigate the bias. You know, you have to be conscious, mitigate it. Let me jump in just quickly because I think that one of the things that you're bringing up is about bad data in is bad data data out. So when Dr. Byfield is talking about the, the ways in which we think about, right, policing and systems, the bad data in means bad data about the criminality of Blackness. And then there's bad output, right? And that's part of the, the, the Central Park Five and what happens and these kinds of, in the systems of policing. Similarly, my first major was computer science. So when we put data in, right? Our data is filled with the biases of who we are, right? When people talk about diversity of thought, I always say this, it's a great concept, but what we know our thoughts are formed by who we are, our backgrounds, our experiences, et cetera. And so, so are our biases, right? So if you have a brain, you have bias, that's about our cognition. And as a result, the way in which we formulate that data often mean that then the way we create algorithms, et cetera, to go back to what you said earlier, Janet, is built in subjectivity and built in subjectivity that is biased based on racial science. There is work by Sophia Noble and mm-hmm. by Virginia Eubanks, Algorithms of Oppression and Automating Inequality. I cannot say enough about these two books. I did an interview with Sophia Noble, just really talking about and outlining how this happens. Now, how do we address this? And I want to make sure that I talk about Ruth Benjamin. Ruth Benjamin is a sociologist and associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton. And she's called this development, the new Jim 
code as opposed to the new Jim Crow, which I just, I have to say, I just absolutely love and really thinking about that idea, right? Because the Jim Crow, of course, was about segregation, digital, I mean, divide, divisions, et cetera. And what we know now is this way beyond a digital divide. We're talking about innovation divides. We're talking about the future of work and lack of access. That's what we're talking about now. And what Dr. Benjamin has done is she has founded something called the Just Data Lab at Princeton to bring together students, educators, activists, and artists to develop critical and new ways of approaching data. She, like Sophia Noble and Virginia Eubanks and others, and we have a something called our Public Institute of Knowledge at NYU, where we too are rethinking this creation of knowledge and how knowledge gets created, right, for this public dis- dissemination. And at the last thing I'll say is to turn it back to Dr. Byfield, is we really also have to think about, right, the ways in which these biases are also impacting, because I have to say this, the future of work. This is the most diverse generations we will ever have, we, we, we have, we've ever had, not will ever have, have ever had. And what we know is if we want our companies to be successful, et cetera, nobody wants to be, I always say this, nobody wants to be Blockbuster, Netscape, or AltaVista. And for the people who are too young, who don't even know what those companies are, they don't exist There's anymore. Reason why. Right? And part of the reason they don't exist is they did not look at the markets and emerging markets. And in particular, if we look at Blockbuster, right, middle and uh, lower income families, and then uh, right, paying $50 versus $10.99 at Redbox. But my point is, is that we really do have to think about innovations and emerging innovations and how we debunk racial science stereotype threat and mitigating bias. And mitigating bias is hard work and you have to have systems and strategies to go back to what Dr. Byfield said. So part of what I think we also need to think about is that we're looking at, and this is why I think it's so, you know, I'm just gonna backtrack for a moment to bring in some of what Dr. Coleman brought up earlier. We are looking at a system of science that's grounded in categorizations and classifications. And they operate well in the context of biases because it's the categories that people have in their minds as they approach the world that sort of instigate them to lean into the biases. Oh, I know what that represents, that category of thing represents. But our very world of science, everything about science. So the first person on the list of scientists that Dr. Coleman mentioned, Linnaeus, the Swedish, the Swedish Linnaeus. This is, and he's a naturalist, right? That's right. What he's doing is he's putting together categories of plants. This is a rose because it has these types of petals. And so as we go through life and that gets incorporated into racial classifications, the meanings that are assigned to racial groups and categories now get built into all of the technologies that we develop because the technologies are nothing but ideas initially. They're concepts that end up getting reified. Material, right, exactly. Right, reified and materialized in, exactly. in things like policing. So what we have, for example, now in the world of policing, which for me is something that we've got to pay really close attention to, is the fact that we're dealing with a global platform. This digital platform that we're living on that allows for these technologies to take off is a global platform. This is a very international global development that means that the ways in which we understand race here in America and the meanings that we are assigning to them 
are going to be multiplied and built in and fed into the system because we know that different cultures have dealt with the issue of race and the meetings assigned to race and things like that differently. But the more and more we globalize this system and the more and more it allows us to one, change meanings quickly. So that goes back to your question, Janet, about, so what does this mean? It means that we have to start dealing with the fact that the science that's at the foundation of all our work is part of the problem because of the ways it manages classifications and categorizations. One. Exactly. And right. And part of that is if we're going to deal with that, then we actually have to get one of the things that I say a lot is when people I'm a chief diversity officer, sort of right and innovation and that. But what I say is that in South Africa, they call me a chief transformation officer. That's the Mm -hmm. title. Mm -hmm. Transformation in South Africa starts with truth and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. But you have to have the truth Mm -hmm. to reconcile. Right. Truth is we have to talk about these foundations, how they're embedded into pharmacology, into the various practices of every scientific, right? And then not only that, to go back to what I also was trying to point out, science is embedded in art, science is embedded in government, science Mm -hmm. is embedded in policy decisions and in incarceration, in mental health, Mm -hmm. in all of the fabric. And we use science as the arbiter of proof and to make things valid. And so in that way, we really have to unearth, right? How science, like some of the work I've been doing right now is all around diversity and belonging and inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. And I just wrote this article on belonging because everybody keeps talking about belonging, like kumbaya, we're all supposed to get along, but we can't, that's not what it's about. You Mm -hmm. have to have contestation and debate. Mm -hmm. And what we know from really good science is if you have contestation and debate, you can get to better answers, Mm -hmm. right? Better innovation. Exactly. Often we have not included that contestation and debate, right? We've, we've, we stifled that and mm-hmm. only used what you've talked about before, Janet, confirmation bias and other mm-hmm. kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? As we talk about it in LI, we talk about, um, you know, inclusion and we talk about how it starts with agreeing that you understand that, that conflict is a part of it. You know, we talk about diverse teams and everybody believes diverse teams should work well. By all logic, they don't immediately. They're not comfortable. Diversity is not comfortable because it is creative conflict. And when we talk about innovation, we cannot talk about any logical innovation that just came up because somebody didn't have a creative idea that had some was in conflict with something else. That's how innovation happens. But the issue is we have to know that a lot of what's baked into this started off biased. A lot of things that we accept as truth. I believe um, she's at NYU, actually, Dr. Colin, Meredith Whitaker. She yes. said, <laughs> yes, she says, I read something her that says- I work with her. <laughs> what she, I love what she said when she says, these the biases and things and algorithms that we have today replicate historical marginalization. That's what they do. We have to know when these algorithms are out, going out and doing things, depending on them, and we we lean in them, we we market by them, we police by them, we get jobs by them, everything. We got to realize what's at the basis of them. So in order to fix that, we're talking about what we could do. One of the things I think we have to do is we have to, as voters, as, as concerned citizens, we have to push our policymakers to hold the people who create these things 
to transparency. We have to push for that. As communicators, we have to be conscious communicators. We have to recognize that when we say things, what we believe to be true may not actually be true, that we are dealing with biases and we have to start that. We have to question ourselves. And one of the things we also say to Nalai is that you can't catch yourself being biased. So that's the importance of conversation. <laughs> you need a team for that. <laughs> You do. You need, you, need, you need people to help you. And that's why we have to have languages. You know, that's what we use. Our C's model is a great one for that. But that's what we believe in. We have to have common languages that are not pointing fingers and calling names. Because, I mean, it feels good to call names sometimes. And sometimes calling names is warranted. I won't argue that. But it doesn't get you anywhere. So we got to find ways to talk about this and not get as triggered as we do because it's understandable. But we got to realize that what we know to be true is that it's untrue. That's what we gotta, So we got to start there. I think that because we know people are operating with these biases, one of the things that we have to accept is that, as you were mentioning, people are not going to see that they're operating with these biases, one. And two, they actually don't necessarily have the tools to step outside of it, two. And the, the third point I wanted to make is that just giving them additional information does not necessarily help. Because part of what they're trapped in is the frameworks that they're using that these categorizations and classifications are based on. And so if they don't have an alternative framework, they're not able really to penetrate the trap that they're in, sort of the the discourse that they're in, the if-then proposition that they're in, this proposition that gets fed into our technologies even, because the technologies organize our world in such a way that leads to the outcomes that reinforce what the biases are telling them, it's really, really hard for them to step outside of this. So part of what this work has to include is a push to transform the science. And embedded within this conversation are systems of power, mm-hmm. right? No one wants to give up power, right? Mm-hmm. But then you have to have intentional strategies to redirect power. One of my examples that I'll use, which is just really small, during the Obama administration, the men were talking over the women. This happens sometimes. Men think their ideas are better than women because their brains are bigger because it was proved during eugenics. That's a joke. So as a result, one of the things that the women did during the Obama administration is they bonded with each other and created a reference structure. So when a woman would speak, they would say, Janet, if a man would steal Janet's idea, like Bob would start saying, oh, I had this great idea and Janet had just said the idea. Then one of the women would say, oh, no, Janet, that was a great idea that you said about 10 minutes ago. Would you like to explore that further? And Natalie, would you like to follow up on that? Right. So they developed an intentional Mm -hmm. strategy Mm -hmm. to redirect references and power, right? Power in the room. So we have to think about those tactical strategies that redirect power because the disruption of power is not easy. One of the things that I write about a lot and have been talking about a lot, is we cannot return to the new normal. We need a new different. We need different ways. I have a whole article titled New Different, right? Mm -hmm. Really thinking about strategy, intentionality, sustainability, and transformation around the truth. This is where we need to be thinking about. I don't think I need to make any other closing statements any better than that. I think that you said it. It's about intentionality, no matter what we're doing. And intentionality starts with admitting and understanding 
that the basis of what you believe may not be objectively true. You start there and then you get intentional about, to your points, both of your points, finding a new system, a new structure, a new way of looking at things. And that's how we got to change this. And it's, that's hard. That is really hard yeah. because we are asking ourselves not to believe what we truly believe. And I think the question you ask yourself always is, why do I believe this objectively to be true? Right. And if you can't answer that question, then you got some work to do. Your Brain at Work is produced by the Neuro Leadership Institute. You can help us in making organizations more human by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And as mentioned on the top of the episode, feel free to look out for any of our webinars on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Institute. Our producers for today are Matt Holodeck, Danielle Kirschenblatt, Ted Bauer, and me, Shade Olasimbo. Original music is by Grant Zubritsky, and logo design is by Catch Ware. We'll see you here next time. <laughs>